Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Dr. John Campbell. Dr. John Campbell is a retired nurse educator who holds a Master of Science in Health Sciences and a PhD in Nursing. He's come to prominence as late due to his YouTube channel that gained enormous popularity during the pandemic. Audiences are enjoying his content as he endeavours to present data that is often unaddressed in mainstream media in an objective and educational manner without evident bias or fear of condemnation. Certainly that's why I enjoy him. I've really been enjoying watching John Campbell on YouTube. Have you, Jen, been watching him? Actually, uh, yeah, well, no. <laughs> what do you do with your time? Just hang around cafes, wondering whether or not to ask someone to go swimming. I was editing Matt Taibbi at the weekend. Matt Taibbi in the coffee shop. In the coffee shop. Yeah. Why did did you put the sign up? No, uh, it's the only place that does nice coffee in the whole of, like the whole radius of where Sometimes I live. Sometimes I want to visit you there. When you I do a gig, I'm one. doing a gig in Ipswich. It's, no, it's nine and a half away. Ipswich. Huh? Ipswich is an hour and a half away. Oh, that's too far. It's so close. For coffee. That's close to you. Yeah. Are you enjoying living there? Yeah. Well, because of the big apple, the big black yeah. apple. I liked it before then. I don't know. It's just like, I feel nice when I'm in that house. Jenny, you should be in prison. <laughs> come and see me on tour. I'm doing. I'm on tour. It's fantastic. You can come see me in Newcastle, Bristol, Liverpool, Plymouth, Carlisle. All fantastic shows. I'm on tour right now, and the energy is high. It's fantastic. It's redemptive. It's cathartic. It's spiritual. It's religious. It's everything you want and more. You'll love it. Come see me. All right. So let's listen to John Campbell. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Thank you, John Campbell. And for the first and last time, I will call you Dr. John Campbell. Thank you for joining me uh, on Under the Skin. Thank you for having me, Russell. Looking forward to it. I'm excited for you to be on my podcast and also uh, for us to talk together on YouTube. I regularly watch your content. And what uh, it seems to me, both from watching your videos and from reading the comments, is that you've become an important voice during the pandemic in that you have been offering people analysis that seems to be, at least in my opinion, devoid of bias and very gentle. What Can you tell me how you began making your content and why you started doing it? Yeah, sure. I've actually got quite a long history of this. My background is I trained as a nurse and then nurse education went into higher education. So we became sort of reluctant academics. So for basically for 20 years, I was a, I was a nurse trainer and, and an academic. And I wanted to sort of, um, I, I always enjoyed teaching overseas, but of course with family and financial constraints, that was difficult. So I started making videos way back in the VHS days that you'll remember, uh, back in the early 90s. And then that went on to sort of CDs and DVDs. And then of course, everything's now dematerialized on, on YouTube. And then when the pandemic came along, I, I was only doing technical videos. I'd just done a technical series for, uh, for Liverpool, uh, John Moore's on, for, for nurse practitioners. But it just seemed that uh, there was a lot of interest in COVID at the time. So I just started doing that. And then it seemed a lot of the coverage that we were getting on COVID was from particular, a particular perspective. So whether it was from mainstream media, they had a, a particular perspective. And the other thing that annoyed me about mainstream media is, in my view, they kind of talk down to people. Whereas if people are prepared to put the effort in, that they are intelligent enough to understand some of the scientific concepts if, if they're properly explained. 
So I started doing that, and, and the aim is to make it uh, objective. So I'm not coming from a, a political point of view. Um, I'm not coming from a sort of socio-economic point of view. I'm just trying to look at what the science is saying, what the scientific papers are saying, and trying to put together these scientific principles with the scientific papers. And then put together a, a relatively short, although they're not always that short, but comprehensible talk on on on, on what is actually going on with a bit of ob objectivity. So so that was the aim of it, and it did seem to become uh, fairly popular. I'm always quite uh, uh, try really try quite hard to avoid a political perspective. Uh, it, it has muscled its way in from time to time. I do try and do it without bias because I, I try and do it on, on the academic papers and on, on the underpinning science and, and using the underpinning science and the, and the academia and the understanding of the immunology and the physiology to make sense of what we hear in the news because sometimes things you hear in the news just wouldn't be scientifically uh, feasible. They couldn't happen. And there seems to be an appetite for that, not talking down to people, but taking the time to explain, accrediting people for the intelligence that, that they've got. So that's kind of the way it, it developed. And it's, it's just developed over the past couple of years. The YouTube channel was there um, before, but I used to get some views, but it was mostly student nurses and doctors that were watching it then. Uh, the, the, the thing about COVID, and I suppose this could say the good thing about COVID, it, it's, it's broadened out into the general to the general public, a bit like a bit like your content, Russell. It's, it's aimed, uh, I think, your content's aimed at the general intelligent but but non-specialist viewer, and and that's what I what I'm aiming at. And I think there's an appetite for that. People seem to appreciate that. Don't always get it right, um, make mistakes. My own personal bias does come out sometimes, but if if mistakes are pointed out to me and it's clear I have made a mistake, then I, I will go back and. Uh, and correct it on a subsequent video. So it's it's a quest. We don't always get quite there, but that's. I think people can see that I'm genuinely trying, even if I don't always <laughs> quite get there. When I watch your content, it seems to me that you're absolutely sincere. And one of the things I enjoy is that it seems to be an apolitical discourse because I think at this point in the pandemic, it's impossible to declare that there is any real objectivity with the amount of censorship and divisive language and it's this of course in a sense the pandemic is not outside of culture so it's going to be subject to the same sort of cultural lenses and tendencies that were present before and we all saw that the way that sort of brexit or trump created divisiveness divisiveness that's generally stoked because it's um helpful to generate more content and stronger emotion and why would this pandemic in a way be any different in terms of the way that it's presented you're absolutely right i mean i think the world in ideological terms is probably more divided than it has been for for hundreds of years i mean we used to have divides on religious grounds now we have divides that are more on ideological and political grounds the extreme example of course is in the states where you have the right wing view the left wing view and basically never the twain shall meet and we are getting that in this country to some extent so so when something that really should be neutral like 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 a pandemic comes along people are tending to view it through their particular lens to sort of reinforce their particular worldview. And, and that is unfortunate because I, 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 do, I do believe, as someone who's, I like to think I'm a bit of a scientist, that there is such a thing as objectivity. There is such a thing as uh, external truth. And, and we, we can elucidate this with the appropriate studies. I mean, this is, this is what theoretically that science is all about. 
you know, no, science actually tries something out in the real world. Does it work? You have an empiricism. Uh, if it works on repeated occasions, then you're getting closer and closer to truth, especially when that ties into what we understand about the theory of science. And those two are consistent with each other. So we're developing more and more, uh, getting more and more towards truth, look, looking more and more for objectivity. But objectivity, but as you rightly say, human nature is intrinsically subjective. And this is the problem, and this is what I'm trying to get over without being emotional and without being political. That, 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 that's what I'm attempting to do, and I think that's what people do find attractive. Yes, clearly from the comments, and that's certainly my personal opinion. There has been a, a tr there have been two discrete trends in broadcasting since the advent of popular social media. On one hand, and this continues to um, uh, uh, advance and accelerate the idea that we all want short soundbite uh, content, 30 second things on TikTok. TikTok has um, altered the social media landscape, even in a, a relatively short period of time. YouTube shorts have sort of appeared. But the sort of concomitant and opposing trend is that people want longer conversations, more reflection, the emergence of a figure like Joe Rogan and public intellectuals of like you know the last five years with the Peterson, Sam Harris, and you know like uh, kind of a status that would only have previously been achieved through publishing. You know like figures even like Gabor Mate, just so it's a little more diverse in terms of sort of political opinion, or at least the way that they're the, the taxonomies that are applied, perhaps retrospectively. So uh, obviously you belong um, in the camp of like, you know, f because of your objective to explain to people that are not experts, but with the assumption that they're intelligent, that they're not idiots. Now, is it so that, that those are lovely sort of, a, a, you know, I personally, you know, I'm attracted to this sort of longer form because you can hear how I talk. You know, I, I, I need a hundred words just to take to take my hat off. Um, so, uh, so John, you know, when we talk about sort of biases in science and, and how we're seeing the the ongoing politicisation of this pandemic, which is we should anticipate, because even though there was a brief moment at the beginning where it felt like this might be a unifying idea that would bring about discussion, togetherness might be quite bonding. There was a sort of certainly ideas like, oh, this will be like a blitz or a war for us, and we'll come together. But in a sense, it's that's not how it's panned out so how do we have like a you know the uh, how, can science ever be extracted from the broader context within which it sits which are you know determined by economic principles and ideals yeah i think you made some really good points there russell actually the, the idea that the pandemic would be a common enemy and that human humanity would would unite to fight this common enemy as if it was an invading military force, you know, like, like, like previous wars. And that doesn't seem to happen. People do seem to have compartmentalised. And I think we do, as again, you've rightly said, view this through the lens of the media. Now, in the past, news was always soundbite-ish because it was limited to, say, the six o'clock news or it was limited to a thousand words in a newspaper column. So that, that weakness has always been there. But as you say, people's attention span now does seem to be less. And maybe there's, there's uh, people are less willing to sort of invest the first few minutes. It's, it's like when you read the first few pages of a book, you think this is a bit boring. But then when you get into it, you realise it's not. You know, people, and, and, so, and these days, it's so easy to click from one social media post to another. If you don't like Russell Brand's video, you go into John's video. If you don't like John's video, Russell's videos is just beneath there, and you can just click on that. Um, you know, it's so easy to change. Uh, 
so I think I think it has sort of exacerbated the problem, and they, they do they do kind of go together. But as you say, people are intrinsically interested in things. For example, their health. For, for example, the the, the political uh, environment that you you might be talking about in some videos. They're interested in that, and those things aren't reducible to to simple sound bites. If you want to interact with that in any meaningful way, that is going to take time because words and thoughts are essentially linear processes. You have to express them one at a time, then try and link them up with previous ideas, and that that is going to take time. And as as you say, people are more and more willing to do that when they have it. And of course, the technology has facilitated this. So I don't know about you, but you know, I can be fairly busy through the day. But then I have a bit of downtime and I'll go for a walk or I'll go cycling or I'll do something like the ironing, you know, something you don't have to think about. And then uh, the, the technology, you know, the, the, just having some earphones allows you to listen to a, a really interesting conversation while, while, while you're doing your walk and you kind of feel involved in it and you get caught up in it and it's... It's it's much much more interesting approach. So there is a, there is a big appetite for that. What I what I try and do in mine is I realise that that there is a sound biteish uh, viewership out there, and that there's some who likes a more meaty uh, a more meaty content. So what I've tried to do in a lot of my videos is, is facilitate that and and say well the bottom line on today's video is, and I'll, I'll give a conclusion. So so like yesterday I started off well there's a new Omicron variant. It's called BA.2. Uh, um, th this is true. Uh, am I worried about it? No, not particularly. And, and that, that's the main content of the video. And then the video goes on to unpack that. But it's not always possible to do that. Sometimes it's just completely <laughs> impossible to summarise it. So sometimes I'll prepare a video and I'll think, well, what is the introduction to this to let people decide if they want to spend half an hour of their life listening to this video? And sometimes you can reduce it to a headline like that, like that. But sometimes you simply can't. You have to go through the long form. You have to be prepared to put in a little bit of mental work, a little bit of concentration, but then you get this reward out. And, and very often that reward is understanding the nature of your health, in my case, or understanding that the nature of science or, or the way a, the way a component of the body works which is is infinitely fascinating and unintelligible but we do have many many simplified models of how the body works that we can use to explain things or how the immune system works but unless you're prepared to invest the time you're not going to get it you're not going to get something for nothing there is a bit of mental work to put down to get it and 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 you, your experience and my experience is showing that millions of people are, are more than happy to do that if your intention is to analyze data, scientific papers, and, and interpret them in a way that's accessible for all of us. And the conclusions you reach are inconsistent with the conclusions that are relayed through the media. What does that tell us? <laughs> yeah. You know, part, part of the problem with the media, Russell, is that the people that are doing the media reporting, if we take the BBC, for example, I'm not going to pick on personalities, but as far as I know, in the health reporting, medical reporting section of the BBC, there are no doctors, there are no nurses, there are no pharmacists, there are no physiotherapists, and I don't think there's very many science graduates. I think they're mostly journalism graduates. And is it fair to expect these people to really understand the, the, the minutiae of science? Because they get things wrong all the time. So, so 
you get, I mean, for example, just taking yesterday's, the work I did yesterday, the, the, the BA1 variant and the BA2 variant of Omicron, you could tell when people were writing about those, they just didn't understand the evolutionary origins of those variants. And it took me about an hour or two to sit down and actually work it out. But the only reason I was able to work it out is you can actually apply a little bit of science to that. Um, in, in this case, it was what you call a phylogenetic cladal analysis, looking at the, the descent, that that starts to make sense. So I really don't see how people without that kind of background can, can actually interpret uh, the, the medicine properly. And as well as that, there's the interpersonal aspects. I mean, I, I became a student psychiatric nurse three weeks after my 18th birthday and I've been involved in in the science and the teaching and the academia, yes, but all, always doing hands-on work with patients as well. So you develop a, a, a sort of a, an innate knowledge, really, of, of how people respond to illness. And again, journal, career journalists simply don't have that experience. So sometimes I do find that my conclusions are, are different. But then, of course, you have journalists who are writing or reporting from a particular uh, perspective. So, for example, a journalist who's writing for the Daily Telegraph might have a different perspective of a journalist who's writing for the for the Guardian. Or the journalist who's reporting for Fox News might have a different perspective as someone who's reporting for CNN, for example. So all, all, all these sort of things can, can play together. So when you take a little bit of scientific ignorance and a bit of political preference, you can end up with something which is, is a little bit off-beam and, and hopefully... Apply, applying the, the sort of scientific principles and, and as you rightly say what I try and do is interpret these scientific papers don't always understand them all myself especially the statistics but the, bit, the bits you do understand if you can interpret those in a, in a way that gets the the main points through to the to, to the listener that they, they, they appreciate that and, and very often you find the main points are the plain points and the the plain points are the main points so you can usually get you know some some really quite significant information from from these studies and it is interesting to compare and contrast it with what the media say and even if the media don't actually get it wrong sometimes they get it wrong but sometimes um because they're not healthcare professionals or scientists they actually um i think i think they actually um oversimplify it because simplifying medical concepts again is quite a skill really i mean it's what i did for 27 years teaching student nurses you simplify mm. concepts and and if you don't have a good understanding of how to do that, you can end up not simplifying, but becoming simplistic and, mm. and, and becoming inaccurate. So, yeah. So, so, yeah, mainstream media has got a lot of, lot of areas for improvement, really, in, in this domain. No question. There's a, no doubt a distinction between uh, simplifying information and being reductive. And often when uh, an organisation or institution is being reductive, the principles at play are not interpretations led by scientific data, but as even the example you said of uh, a right-leaning newspaper will interpret the information one way and a left or progressive leaning newspaper will interpret the information so it tells you that the where the biases are coming from and what the agenda is likely to be it, but in truth these biases ought be irrelevant when dealing with a medical matter now over the course of this pandemic how have you noticed the 
this phenomena metastasize from a the, we are dealing with a problem there is this virus we need to control the virus here are some methods and techniques that would be useful in controlling it wash your hands keep your distance wear a mask don't wear a mask get a vaccine don't get a vaccine when did you start to uh, and well, the question is broader than that. Do you suspect that other agenda have been pursued other than how do we best stop people getting unwell? To give but one obvious example, if um, the point of social lockdowns and social distancing is to prevent the spread, why were the government, uh, you know, in the shape of the Conservative Party in the UK, so willing to continually have parties and not think, oh, no, we're at risk because of this coronavirus. So, like, you know, that, again, shows the kind of a commissure within which hypocrisy is visible. I think there's hypocrisy in many aspects of, uh, of, pu of public life, or so that's for sure. I think to answer your first question, when did I first notice it? I think it became completely overt with Trump's news conferences. Um, when Trump was clearly not a doctor, clearly not a scientist. And one of the things, you, you, can, you can like Trump or hate him, but one of the things I like about him is he's not a very good politician. And he tends to sort of speak off the cuff. So he just sort of speaks and just, just, just says, says things. And very often they're hopelessly, hopelessly inaccurate. So, so, for example, the, the classic one is um, people have said he was advocating injecting disinfectant. Now, I don't think he was actually doing that, but that's, that's clearly absurd. But I think because Trump was saying things, a lot of people wanted to take the opposite view because they wanted to oppose, oppose President Trump. So one of the obvious ones there was President Trump started advocating hydroxychloroquine, as you'll probably remember. And there was a big sort of counter argument to that saying, well, no, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. And then there were some clinical trials on hydroxychloroquine. But it was really quite strange because the doses that they chose for those trials were way too high and wouldn't give accurate results. So we were left without getting a, a, a firm answer. So it was whatever Trump, if Trump advocated um, a particular strategy, then the, so if, if Trump advocated more liberalisation and not locking down, th then the left wing would advocate more, uh, more lockdowns and social restrictions. So I think I noticed it then. Um, is there an agenda? Clearly, there's agendas. Um, there's political agendas. But what's confusing, and I think this and this applies to the UK, maybe more to the United States. To what degree is the political agenda influenced by the financial agenda? So um, to, to give one example, uh, an Australian doctor called Barry Marshall invented a way to eradicate the bacteria that caused peptic ulcers way back in the 90s. But at the time, Big Pharma, the pharmaceutical companies, were selling billions of dollars a year in drugs that people needed to take every day. And the last thing that it appeared that they wanted was, was, a, was a young doctor coming along saying, well, no, we don't need to take a pill every day. I can actually cure this condition. And, and now Barry Marshall's work on the eradication of Helicobacter pylori has saved millions and millions of lives. But there was a lot of resistance to that. Well, I was talking to Professor Clancy just the other day on my video from Australia, one of the world's leading clinical, uh, well, it's actually one of the world's first um, clinical immunologists. And in 1985, he actually invented a form of vaccine, 
that could reduce hospital admissions by about 50% from what we call acute exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So people with bad chests coming in uh, every winter with, with, with exacerbations. And of course, in an A&E department, you'll get several of these per day. It must cost the health service billions. But his vaccine for that was never taken up because it couldn't be reduced to a, to a pharmaceutical. And of course, that ties in with Trump's thinking about hydroxychloroquine. Now, because hydroxychloroquine is an old drug, it's off patent because typically the patents only last for 15 years. So um, ph pharmaceutical companies could have made it and sold it, but any pharmaceutical company could make it and sell it. Therefore, there couldn't be any price control. And, and then that led into the whole debate with ivermectin, which, of course, you, you'll be familiar with. Again, ivermectin is a drug which has been used billions of times around the world. Is, is a very safe drug as far as drugs go. Uh, and, and yet there's been this tr tremendous debate about it, often on, on political grounds. So the, the opacity of quite what are the links between, say, pharmaceutical companies that are making, I mean, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, they are both declared, openly declared, to be for-profit vaccines. And we're talking about many billions. Now, no one's saying that the big farmers kicking back directly to politicians, of course. But it, that, that lack of clarity means that people can't fully trust what individuals are saying because they don't know whether there's a financial motivation, a political motivation, an ignorance motivation or whatever it is that's clouding the picture in that. So um, are there agendas here? Um, it's hard to tell. It's opaque. Um, have have pharmaceutical companies and, and other supply companies made billions of dollars out of this pandemic? Absolutely, they've made billions of dollars out of this pandemic. So you can see why people become a little bit uh, suspect when we have opacity in relationships between powerful individuals. The principles of science that m make it most appealing, their claim to empiricism and therefore objectivity, are undoubtedly challenged in the area of pharmacology where there is a necessity for profit and the clear influence of profit can be traced, if not with regard to this particular case, where maybe it's too soon to say, certainly with the relatively recent opioid crisis or the example from Australia that you just cited, that morality, objectivity, these kind of values that we are dependent upon whenever we put an institution in a position of power seem a little more flexible than they, than they, than they would ideally be. Uh, particularly when taken in conjunction, John, with other areas in which the debate seemed to have been stymied, but one example would be early treatment, another would be natural immunity. Both of these ideas Ideas. It's you know, even for a person like me who has, you know, I'm just a pundit, in like not a pundit in the literal sense because it means kind of expert, doesn't it, in Hindi? But I, I'm just a man talking, should we say? So I don't know anything about medicine or an anatomy or pharmacology. But it seems that like the the, the natural immunity and uh, early treatment both could be adverse to other more prominent and even. In mandated solutions so what it, i've seen you talk about natural immunity somewhat i've not seen you and perhaps that's my perhaps this is remiss of me i've not seen you talk about early treatment as much and i feel like i've seen comments asking you to do that um so what are your thoughts in both of those areas yeah 
objectivity is really quite difficult intrinsically in pharmacology because whenever you put forward an idea in pharmacology, you'll always get someone who says, well, where are the randomized double-blind controlled trials on this? So if you're talking about hydroxychloroquine or you're talking about ivermectin, for example, as an early treatment, people will say, well, where's the large-scale randomized double-blind controlled trials on this? Well, there isn't any. Can you just tell me what a randomized double-blind trial is, please? Sure, 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 sure. So if you want to know if a new drug works... You have to have a clinical trial to see if it works. This is the experiment to see if it works. So you want, you want a few thousand people who are actually getting a new drug and a few thousand people who are not getting the new drug. But the point is, if you've got a few thousand people and you say to them, well, I'm giving you this new sophisticated drug and we think it's probably going to make you better, they'll think, oh, I'm getting a new sophisticated drug. It's probably going to make me better. And the fact that they think that makes is going to make them better is likely to make them better in itself. That just that belief. And that's well recognised. That's called the placebo effect. But then if you say to another group of people, well, we're doing this clinical trial and those group of people over there, they're getting some nice, sophisticated new treatment. Whereas you, you're just getting a sugar pill. You're just getting a placebo. You're just a control. You're not as important. Now, not only will those people not have the placebo effect, they could actually believe that's making them worse and have have what's called a nocebo effect. So we have to have two groups. And it's absolutely vital that who goes into those groups is randomised. So if you imagine, could you have all men in one group and all women in another group? Well, obviously not. Could you have young people in one group and older people in another group? Well, obviously not. Could you have people with heart disease and smokers in one group and non-heart disease and non-smokers in the other group? Again, you would be comparing apples and oranges. You have to compare like with like. So you can think about things like male, female, age, body mass index, smoking status, heart disease. And you could you could allocate people to one group or other, the experimental group getting the drug or the placebo group based on that. But of course, then there's thousands of things that you don't know about. So the only way to compare like with like is to randomize it. So you must have randomization either to the experimental group or the control group. And then it has to be blind to get rid of this placebo and nocebo effect. And the only way you make it blind is you have the drug looks the same and the placebo looks the same. And that means the patients are blind. So the patients don't know whether they're getting the drug and they don't know whether they're getting the placebo. They don't know. And as well as that, it has to be double blind. And if it's double blind, that means the nurses and the doctors giving the treatment don't know whether they're giving the active treatment or where they're giving the placebo. Because if I go into a patient's cubicle who's sick and uh, I, I give them a drug and I know that's the drug, they're going to be able to read that in me to some extent. And, and the people interpreting the results mustn't know whether it's actually the drug or not. That means it's all objective all obje- or it, it promotes objectivity. So that means it's a randomised, that you have to be random allocation, mathematical random allocation as to who goes into what group. So it's randomised. It's got to be double blind. So the patients and the staff and the people interpreting the results don't know who's in which group. So it's a randomised double blind. It's controlled because the control group are not getting the active treatment. And it's a clinical trial. And that is the gold standard of working out what treatments are. That's the first time I've ever understood that. Thank you. And uh, yeah, it really does. You really broke that down. I'm like one of them nurses from your VHS days. I, I get it now. Thank it's you. much easier if I can draw on a whiteboard at the I same time. I miss that. I've got to tell you, I miss the cutaway of the fountain pen. That's killing me not having that. Um, oh yeah, the, <laughs> I've, got, I've got it here. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the thing I wanted to say is with regard to the double blind component of this experimental 
uh, process. Controlled trial, yeah. yeah. Does that not in itself indicate that the power of consciousness and innate healing propensities within our nature is so powerful that science has to sort of blanket it out? Otherwise, Absolutely. You could just tell people... Get better. <laughs> they would get better. Absolutely. The, the placebo effect can do things that are apparent miracles. And more ominously, Russell, the nocebo effect can as well. So if people believe, for example, in witch doctors, and the witch doctor says, I put a curse on you, and the person who's had the curse put on them actually believe that, then that belief will make them sick. It's called the nocebo effect. So when I was young and foolish, I took an interest in uh, mushrooms. You madman. Yeah, absolute insanity. I was about, I must have been about 20 or something like that. I was taking, so I went out and picked some mushrooms and I learned to identify psilocybin mushrooms. And I thought, well, I'll just take a couple of those and see what happens. So I took a couple of these psilocybin mushrooms. Now, I'm not advocating this. Never done it again. Confessed and repented. All that's finished. <laughs> I never took enough to have any real effect anyway. But then I thought, you know, I wonder if those mushrooms... I think some of those mushrooms I picked had white gills underneath them, which would make them poisonous. Now, they didn't. I'd picked the right ones because I was very careful about it. But then I came to believe that I'd eaten a poisonous mushroom. And that made me start feeling really, really ill. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a physiological effect. It was just my belief. And I had to take advice to point, that I, point out that I wasn't ill. So, it's a, so a, nocebo, a, a nocebo effect can make you ill. A placebo effect can make you better. And, and, and really quite dramatically. Now, clinical trials have been done on this, where you can actually separate out the active drug from the placebo effect. So w when I give you a painkiller, if you come into my A&E department and I give you 10 milligrams of morphine, for example, for your pain, then about 70% of the beneficial effect you will experience is as a result of the pharmacology of the morphine. About 30% of that is because you believe I've given you an effective painkiller. So it's actually been identified as around about 30% in the field of analgesia. And there's a placebo effect in, in absolutely everything. That's why whether you're looking at surgery, whether you're looking at wound healing, whether you're looking at treating heart disease, whether you're looking at treating brain disease, kidney disease, you always have to have this randomised double-blind component, otherwise you can't get objective results. It makes me feel that consciousness itself, faith and belief, are formative, foundational, necessary components of reality in the way that reality is expressed and realised, and to foreclose that reality is um, hubristic and sort of lacks optimism and open-mindedness. That, that seems to me that that's telling us something fundamental. Yeah, I, I really agree with that, Russell. Men and women are, are holistic. We are mind, clearly. We're body. But there's also a spiritual component, whatever you take that to mean. So whenever you have science that's devolved of the individual... The, the role of the clinician really is to put that individual back in. So, you know, when I, when I, when I go to a patient in, in pain, I, I'll hold the hand and I'll be with them. I'll, I'll come alongside them. But looking at it from a much broader point of view, science really, modern science, I feel, does inform spirituality in, in a way that's never been informed before. So maybe if we just take a couple of examples. If, if we take one example as you as an individual or me as an individual, um, uh, without being too crude about it, your father and my father were quite capable of producing three or four hundred million individual reproductive cells per day. And yet there was the one cell that fertilised your mum's ovum became Russell. The one cell that fertilised my, 
mums over and became became me. So is that like one chance out of 300, 300 million that you're you and not your, your brother or sister? It's quite interesting. And of course, that depends that you're on the particular ovum and that your mum met your dad. And of course, that goes back throughout the, the whole generations. So science can just show us this bewildering array of possibilities just in terms of the individual. And yet here we are, you and me, both experiencing consciousness. And more than that, to an extent, to an extent, uh, understanding, if not experiencing, each other's consciousness because we're communicating and I can tell that you're understanding things that I'm saying. So it ties up in the individual. But then when we look at science, it also ties up into the whole nature of the universe without being too grandiose about it. Because if you take any parameter in science, take take any science. So take 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 you take biology, take take geology. If you change any aspect of geology, pretty well any aspect of geology, you don't have a stable planet. So if the Earth's a little bit further to the from the sun or closer to the sun, or if the moon isn't the right mass and the moon isn't the right distance, and the amount of uranium in the Earth's crust is not right to give the right amount of plate tectonics and the the amount of water in the oceans is not right to give the hydro cycle. If you change anything, you don't have a long-term stable planet and therefore you don't, you don't have human beings. So we depend on everything in physics, everything in chemistry, everything in geology, everything in biology being exactly as it is. Or you and me are not experiencing this, whatever this is, this consciousness now that we are currently experiencing. And the more we learn about science the more improbable it looks that all these things could just arise spontaneously as as random chance. So it's just a whole fascinating area where, you know, people talk tend to talk about a religion science as if they're in separate boxes or even worse that, that they are that they are opposed to each other. Whereas to me, um, the more you learn about science, the more it leaves for the sheer wonder of this phenomena we call consciousness, let let alone the, the the way that emerges into our social interactions and the way that we live now and the way we've lived throughout history. It just gives a whole new dimension to it. Absolutely, John, particularly when you include the fact that consciousness and our faith and belief clearly influence outcomes. It starts to help me to understand how um, a, a reportedly materialistic and scientifically based perspective on reality is usually heavily editorialised to reach, I would say, pretty pessimistic outcomes like even in response to what you just said i imagine people say yes but this takes place within the infinite so when you offer up an incredible statistic that leads to just two individual human lives oh well but within the infinite like there's this assumption that what we're always leaning towards is this bias towards the sacred but i would level the same charge in reverse in their direction that it's the continual exclusion of the sacred and if you continually exercise the potential for a sacredness in human life well guess what the result is you can treat human beings badly you can treat the earth as as a resource you can create heavily hierarchical societies and it doesn't matter where people are exploited at the bottom of it that one particular perspective leads to tyranny and certainly advances institutions that are powerful currently and the other one suggests that we should radically review the way that we set up society so it seems to me that there is an advantage in promoting one perspective over another yeah, there is something intrinsically special about human beings. So if I think of some instances in my life where I've treated human beings as I, as I wouldn't want to, 
in the past as I wouldn't want to now uh, as a way that's fallen below my standards. There's nothing bothers me really more in life than, than my failures in that area. Now, I have, I'm not saying I'm a mass murderer or anything, but there's been times where I haven't treated people as I'd want to. And, and they're, they're the things I feel most guilty about. I think you know, they are the most things I feel most guilty about in life because there's something special. And me as a human being, there's something deep inside me that knows these other human beings are, are really quite special. But where you talk about the, the, the earth and the individual as a subset of the infinite, as you mentioned there, people appeal to things like, well, first of all, the multiverse um, because our, our universe is, isn't infinite. It, it is of a limited, it's, it's a limited age, it's a limited size, it had a beginning, uh, if you be, believe in Big Bang cosmology. So when people appeal to the infinite, actually what they're doing is appealing to a philosophical belief, to support their philosophical belief, because there is, by definition, there is no evidence at all for the existence of the multiverse. Now, you can believe it if you want, like you can believe in the Loch Ness Monster, but there's not one shred of evidence that the multiverse exists. It's postulated as a way of saying, well, yes, all these things are improbable, but if you have an infinite amount of chances that they're going to happen, then you're bound to happen one time, and hey, you know what, we just happen to be in, in that one time. But that, that that's appeal to a philosophical belief. So by definition, it's not a scientific argument because it's an appeal to something to which in this case, the multiverse, to which to which there is no evidence that it actually exists. It may or it may not. In my view, it almost certainly doesn't. Whenever we pursue that, you know, I'm not saying whenever. In some occasions when we pursue a scientific discipline into uh, increasingly small parcels, we start find that we find ourselves in the, a, a realm comparable to poetics, super states of limitless potentialities, things happening and not happening and both and neither and neither. Like it starts to, it resists, opposes and undoes our conventional understandings. And so what you're left with is the kind of ontological equivalent of a set of local customs rather than a robust set of thermodynamic principles that are cannot be denied and so once we open the door to that then you recognize that the reality that we all inhabit is likely a reflection of the interests uh, that uh, the, the interests of dominant ideological forces will be overrepresented in the way that we perceive reality because how else would it be editorialized when there are limitless possibilities that's right. I mean, pe people living in particular cultures in the past have just accepted the status quo. So, um, you know, people might accept that there's the lord of the manor and, and, I, and I'm the peasant who digs, who digs the ground. So pe pe people have often just accept the, the reality they're brought up into. But, but in the age of science, that has changed a little bit. So if you take what you were talking about there, these quantum ideas that something can exist and not exist at the same time, this sort of Schrodinger's cat, cat idea that the cat can be alive and dead. The point is with these, the, these are based on, on, on mathematics. Now, the, wor the world is based on mathematics. You can reduce the world to mathematical principles, but perhaps there's a limit to what that can be extrapolated down to. So, so while mathematics can explain a game of snooker in absolutely perfect, maybe the ability to, to uh, sort of extrapolate mathematics from the quantum world in, into reality doesn't always quite work. So we can get a bit... Uh, over-immersed in certain aspects of science. So I think what we have to do is take the good aspects of science, the bits we're certain about, the bits you can kind of hang your shirt on, that, that, that is good, so like pictures you can see through the 
Hubble Space Telescope that they are there, they represent reality. Whereas we have to differentiate that between the more sort of esoteric, um, not exactly imaginations, but uh, extrapolations of mm-hmm. principles which, which may or may not be correct. Dr. John, we what happened there is we went on a glorious pirouette, a beautiful tangent that began with... I, I enjoyed it beautifully because all of these things have to be considered. You can't deliberately extract these uh, the theological observations in order that you reach convenient truths, particularly when in the early part of our conversation, what we're saying is that these truths are intrinsically full of biases, or at least we've touched on that. Now, like um, the question that I'd love to uh, return to is what are your thoughts on both natural immunity and uh, early treatment? And what, why are these not part of the conversation in a way that they perhaps could be? Such a good question. I mean, in the early days of the pandemic, if people were, were diagnosed as being positive, they were told to go home and basically ring up healthcare providers if they develop complications. I mean, what kind of management is that? But the rationale to that was, well, we don't have any specific antiviral drugs. Now, you could argue that that is true, but we, there's general things that promote health. So there's lots of preventative things we can do. So, for for example, you, you, you like me, Russell, you, you live in England. I suppose it's a pretty dull day outside there where you are now. I'm further north. It's probably even duller. That means basically for six months of the year, we don't make any vitamin D because we get nearly all of our vitamin D from sunshine. So we know that a lot of people are short of vitamin D. So so why didn't the government guidelines say, well, increase your vitamin D levels to increase your immunity? Because we know that people that are lacking vitamin D are going to be immunocompromised. And you remember the tragedies in the start of this pandemic where quite a few uh, nurses and doctors who, who were darker coloured skinned died in greater proportion to lighter coloured skinned nurses and doctors. Ter- terrible loss there. But th- these are the people that make vitamin D most slowly. But why was that never sort of tied together? And what about nutrition? Why has there been no advice on nutrition? Again, we know that people that are short of zinc are going to be more immunosuppressed. We know that if you eat lots of fruits and vegetables and a wide variety of uh, vegetables particularly, you're going to improve the quality of your microbiome. And we know that that is associated with an enhanced immune response. We know that people that take regular exercise have better immunity. Why were these things never done? There didn't seem to be any emphasis on prophylaxis, on prevention, apart from vaccination. Now, vaccination has been essential, but why would you put all your eggs in the vaccination basket? And then there was many treat many treatments that were postulated that were going to help at an early stage. So as well as the nutritional ones, there's the hydroxychloroquine that we mentioned. There's there's an antidepressant called fluvoxamine that seems to help in the early stages. There's the debate about ivermectin that many people seem to help in the early stages. But even if these things don't help, as a clinician, I would say, well, okay, this might not help, but as long as it's not doing any harm. What, 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 what's the problem of not doing any harm? So people will often come to me and say, well, I'm taking a homeopathic treatment for, for my rheumatism or whatever. And I'll say, oh, excellent. That's a really good idea. Take your homeopathic treatment. Now, my scientific belief is that is completely useless. But the point is it's not doing them any harm either. And, and it might give them some positive placebo effect. Um, as long as it's not doing any harm. So there's lots of things like this where the risk of harm, the risk of harm from taking ivermectin is really very, very small. It's, it's, we've given about 4 billion doses of ivermectin out around the world. 
And there's only about 70 or 80 adverse reports uh, from that. It's it's one of the safest drugs. So if people want to take that, what what would be the harm in that when it might do them some good? It would certainly give them a positive placebo effect. And and uh, it it wouldn't is very unlikely to do them any harm. I mean, I think things have changed now a bit. So, for example, we've got this new this new Pfizer drug, this Paxlovid, which does seem to reduce hospitalizations. We know that if people do deteriorate, it's good to give them steroids, but that's at a much later stage. We want people to be able to take some of these treatments as soon as they get diagnosed. Taking high levels of vitamin C aren't going to do any harm. Taking some extra zinc for a few days isn't going to do any harm. And the complete reluctance to to talk about any of these things, it just just seems a bit bemusing. why aren't we going for some potential early treatments? And, and again, if we'd done this from an early stage, we could have collected data on millions of people who were doing this, millions of people who'd taken extra zinc, and we could have compared those to a few million people who didn't. And that's kind of a, a clinical trial because you then get a zinc group and you get a non-zinc group and you could compare and contrast those. But just these tremendous opportunities for research just seem to be uh, been ignored by government who just go on and on about lockdowns and vaccination as if they've only got two strategies. John, these questions hang in the air, don't they? You know, they, re- okay, they really you know, do. Like, why didn't they do that? And then the next question, why why, why uh, is there, does there seem to be an unwillingness to uh, acknowledge uh, uh, natural immunity? And when you start to hang all these questions up, they all appear to point in a particular direction. And that's the direction that isn't allowed to be queried. That's indeed the case. Let's take the natural immunity one, for example. Now, um, if someone's had two doses of vaccine, then you're going to be protected against symptomatic disease for about 20, 25 weeks. You'll have a fair level, not complete level, but a fair level of protection against symptomatic disease for about 20, 25 weeks. Now, if you have a booster dose, then you're going to get symptomatic protection against infection for about a further 10 weeks. And you don't clearly see from that you don't need to be a mathematician to see that's half the time so we're getting a law of diminishing returns and if we gave a fourth dose as they're doing in israel well the early data from that is showing well the level of protection is even less after that so if we keep vaccinating we get a law of diminishing returns on vaccines apart from the cost and the sheer implausibility of vaccinating everyone few months every few months which simply couldn't happen so vaccines are scientifically, uh, immunologically incapable of taking us out of this pandemic on their own. There's evidence that that is simply not working. So at some stage, we have to have natural immunity. Now, to me, the best time to be exposed to the virus, if you take me, for example, I've had three doses of, of vaccine now. And it's inevitable that I'm going to be exposed to Omicron because Omicron is going to be endemic for the next few years. Now, at the moment, because I've just had three doses of vaccine, my protection against hospitalisation is about 90% protection compared to someone who's not vaccinated. So to me, if I was exposed to Omicron now and I made antibodies to all the 20 or so different proteins in the virus that are uh, all the 20 different proteins in the Omicron virus, that's going to give me what we call polyclonal immunity to a lot of parts of the virus. And the safest time for me to get that immunity is now when I'm protected against hospitalisation. So exposure to Omicron is inevitable. You and I, everyone in England, everyone in the United States, basically everyone in the world, the way it's going is going to be exposed to Omicron unless they live in a, in a situation of complete 
social isolation. So this natural immunity is inevitable. And the natural immunity, Omicron is particularly fortunate. We could actually say, getting back to our previous conversation, Russell, that Omicron was providential because we've got a condition that is spreading, what, maybe five times faster than Delta, uh, but yet is causing way less hospitalizations and severe illness. But the really good thing about Omicron is when someone's exposed to Omicron, the antibodies they make and the T cells that they stimulate and the B cells that they stimulate in their immune system has reverse immunity for Delta. This is why Delta's died out so quickly, because someone who's exposed to the Omicron virus is going to make antibodies and sensitized T cells to the Omicron virus. But that's also going to protect them against Delta virus. So if Delta virus comes along, they're going to be immune to it and the Delta virus can't replicate. In other words, Omicron has made pretty sure that there's no space left, no mucous membranes left, no respiratory tracts left for the Delta virus to reproduce in. So Omicron has been absolutely brilliant. And when people are exposed to Omicron, I believe that they're going to have natural immunity for a long period of time. And we actually know now that people who've had natural infection, people that have been exposed to, say, say, the alpha strain way back or the delta strain way back, we know that they actually have good levels of protection against severe disease, even when it comes to Omicron. Now, they can get reinfected with Omicron, but they're still protected against severe disease. So I don't mind getting sick for a couple of days and getting a bit of a cold. I prefer not to. Um, that I can kind of live with that, but I don't want to be hospitalised. And actually looking back, the way to most reduce my risk of hospitalizations would have been uh, to be infected in the past. Now, we didn't know what the dangers were then. So it seems to me that my best course of action is to be exposed to the virus now. And that's going to give me long term immunity. The problem is, of course, some people that are immunocompromised, that's going to be much more dangerous for. So we can never advocate that as a strategy. But sooner or later, we can't keep on vaccinating everyone even if even if physiologically we got good results from the vaccine we just can't keep doing that so sooner or later we have to have natural immunity new zealand's in this position now for example so the there's early omicron spread in new zealand there's virtually no natural immunity but about 90 percent of people have had vaccines so you could argue that this is the best time for new zealand to develop natural immunity while they're still protected from hospitalizations or the vast majority of hospitalizations but by by the protection of vaccination omicron comes along extra immune boost and that really helps to kick this disease into the endemic area rather than the pandemic area and this is true for every other organism pretty well okay we've got rid of smallpox through vaccination but everything else you're exposed to you, you, you've been exposed to thousands of different bacteria and viruses this morning russell but you haven't got ill um hopefully because you've you've got natural immunity to these things so natural immunity in the long term is the only way to go so a few questions, of course, uh, following on for that, um, John. Like I, I watched your video on the um, the Freedom of Information Act release around the reporting of um, fatalities. Uh, um, well, again, why do you think there has been this conflation uh, and uh, and the confusion that has arisen from it? I feel like the figures you said, this when you looked at that one average, it was about 254,000 deaths. You looked at another one, it was about 174,000 deaths. When there was no comorbidities at all, it was 17,000 deaths. 
why do you think that, the, that this conversation is not happening publicly? I can't even really, I've struggled to come up with an optimistic reason. Like they're so determined to help us that they just don't want to say anything that will prevent us from helping ourselves. But I don't see evidence of that attitude anywhere else in the, our social structures or our political strategies. So it would be a huge anomaly if I that certainly were. I haven't heard that number on the BBC, that's for sure. One of the interesting things here is whenever I say something that questions the way we're doing the vaccination program at the moment or whenever I say something that indicates that the level of deaths from from um, COVID-19 is way lower than we think that's taken up by people who focus solely on that to support what we were talking about before to support their ideological position so uh, right-wing commentators, for example, in the States have taken up that 17,000 deaths figure, uh, quoted me on it and uh, made it sound like I'm saying that this means that the pandemic's only killed 17,000 people. But what, what you actually need to do, it's much more nuanced than that. And that there's arguments on both ways. That particular 17,500 figure, that is the amount of death certificates in I think was it I can't remember if it's just England or whether it's for all of UK, but it was the England amount of death Wales. certificates. England and Wales, that, that was it, quite right. England and Wales. So that that was the amount of death certificates in England and Wales where COVID nineteen was put as the sole cause. So what you would normally do on a death certificate is the doctor would put the prime cause first. So for example, someone might have died of say a cerebrovascular accident, they've had a stroke. But then that was with a background of, of chronic vascular disease, but they also had some uh, bronchitis and emphysema, and they also had a level of dementia. The doctor would put those in the order in which he believed they contributed to the, to the death. So it would be quite common to have COVID-19, then underneath that uh, long-term diabetes, long-term cardiovascular disease, long-term uh, respiratory disease, which we know are, are relevant comorbidities, or, or you might have... Um, um, coronavirus disease followed by morbid obesity and hypertension for example you would expect that so what what this means is there's 17,000 roughly 17 and a half thousand times in England and Wales where doctors have just written COVID-19 as the cause of death meaning the doctor didn't think there was any significant comorbidities now having said that I'm sure you and I know uh, people with diabetes who are otherwise fairly fit now, if, if they got COVID-19, so you might have, say, a fit 55-year-old person with type 1 diabetes. If they, if they were unfortunate and died of COVID, you would have COVID-19 as the first thing on the, on, the diagno on the diagnosis, on the death certificate. Then the second thing might be uh, diabetes. So, so that means that they've died of COVID, which could be complicated by diabetes. But without the COVID, they could have gone on and lived for another 20 years or another 30 years. Yeah. So, so it, it it's too simplistic just to say, well, only seventeen thousand people have died of pure COVID, because when you and I die, Russell, unless we die all of a sudden from a trauma, it's likely that there'll be several pathologies all at the same time. In fact, given that thankfully, thankfully, most people in this country died a fairly old age, we call this senile multiple pathology. So there's not just one condition, there's several conditions. So, you know, I've lost my dad recently, as you would expect at my stage of life. He, he had a degree of dementia. He had prostatism. He had a degree of uh, spinal stenosis. You know, he had various things that all contributed to, to, towards the final, the final death. You can't just relate it to, to one thing. So um, people will pick up on something simplistic like that and they use it to reinforce their idea. And then what happens with me is... 
if I say something that critiques, uh, say, the way vaccination program is done with, with children, for example, if I critique that, people will write in and say, don't you realise you're playing into the hands of the anti-vaxxers by doing this? Well, well to, to an extent, that's not really my fault. If I'm putting forward <laughs> something that's objective and true, it's not my fault if someone says, well, you know, someone misinterprets that. No, or, or it isn't, is it? If telling the truth is an issue, re-examine your whole philosophy. Well, that, that, that's right. Or, or, you know, if I say something that promotes lockdowns or says that lockdowns aren't such a good idea, then the opposite cause will take that up and quote me. So there's been quite a few American commentators have taken up that very point about the 17,000 deaths, saying, well, John Campbell says only 17,000 people have died of COVID. Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but it doesn't yes. alter the fact that there's these 17,000 death certificates where that's the only cause of death. Therefore, it's likely that these people had no significant comorbidities. Firstly, sorry to learn of the death of your father, God rest his soul, if that's the no, way. No, it, 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 was, it, it was the right time. He was ready. It was it's fine. And um, secondly, um, it's like the death of 17,000 people at the beginning of this, You like, you know, before, before this, you know, when it sort of seemed like, what, what is this thing happening in China? You know, if you'd learned that 17,000 people were going to die, you'd go, oh my God, that's terrible. And of course, people dying with comorbidities, whether it's like diabetes or a, a multitude of varying conditions, that is very, very sad and like awful and everyone's life is valuable. But, but what it suggests in some ways is that we regard, you know, like it seems that we might need to revise the way we regard life once again as sacred and worthy of protection and the kind of uh, what other ideas do that bring to, bring to the forefront around the, the kind of social structures we have, the way that we support human life, the way we value human life, the way we treat one another, what kind of values need to be promoted. And secondly, it's, you know, my personal perspective isn't I, I got no axe to grind or drum to bang on behalf of medical procedures. I'm interested in the way that information is used to impact populations and to control the reality of people. So, like, really what I would say is why from the beginning of this pandemic hasn't there been an open discourse where, it's like, where people are saying, right, we've just learned this. It seems that people without comorbidities, so don't worry, but we're going to have to particularly focus on people that do have comorbidity. That's got to be a real focus. Right, we've just learned maybe people are saying that zinc and vitamin D and like, so that's, we're going to be looking at that and honest and open because then you think oh wow these people are really trying their best to run the country and deal with this medical emergency because it has been so overtly politicized you find yourself like it's very difficult not to yourself take an entrenched position because I, like you know i find myself thinking i do not trust the government that's my starting point. I do not trust Big Pharma. That's my start. So, right, I'm starting there. That's what I can see happening. So I'm going, you know, like, so, you know, it's very difficult, I think, when we're with the, you know, the context that we're operating within to guard against cynicism. And my, my, my sort of suggestion, my hope, my prayer, my policy will be to change that context so that there is open discourse. And I think that's why you've been such a welcome relief, because... You know, I don't care what people do. You know what I mean? Like, I, I hope that we all, as you said, you know, we understand one another. We're using language. It seems that we're reaching one another. And like, you know, we've, who cares? I'm not interested in focusing on how people see reality differently than me. I want to try and work out how are we going to coexist together lovingly. And it seems that that's not possible with the way that the media is behaving, with the way the government's behaving, the way the big business is behaving. And, and it's so COVID, in a sense, whilst it's, it's, it's extraordinarily unique, is also showing signs of being extraordinary very consistent with what we've seen go before it. Mm. I mean, the, the, the aim is to make humans live 
as long as they can, as comfortably as they can. We want to alleviate human pain, suffering and death as much as much as we can. But there's so, some so, so important points you've raised there, Russell. I remember way back in, I think it was February 2020, I don't want to misquote him, but I think it was Patrick Valance said we, we might we might get out of this with 20,000 deaths. Um, so how did, you know, the senior scientific officer and the senior medical officer so uh, underestimate the potential risk of this pandemic as they seem to? So there's a question mark on on the very science itself there. Uh, but but then if you take go back to that freedom of information request, that's 17,000 people that have died. As, as you say, it, it's terrible. It's a lot, lot of people and it's more than we, we originally thought it was going to be. But the point is, while we've had all these restrictions, while the health service has been busy, even though we've lost these 17,000 people or whatever it is, 100,000 people, whatever the real death figure is, um, it's been estimated that there's 50,000 people that have developed uh, cancer during the last two years who may well go on to die who otherwise wouldn't have done. So we have this problem. Whenever we spend resources on one thing, it means we're not spending resources on another thing. So what, what, would, what would we prefer? Would we prefer 17,000, 20,000 people to die from COVID or 50,000 people to die from, from cancer? It's not, it's not an easy question to look at and if we look at the waiting times now on the health service is it five million now russell i think it is i, th I think it's five million people waiting for treatment on, on the health service at, at the moment so um th there's these sort of trade-offs and these difficult this, these difficult questions but i think it does relate to what you said because we want to make these decisions in the light of as much knowledge as possible, in the light of the truth, so that these decisions could be taken at the macro level, but also on the individual level. And information has been controlled. People have been essentially humoured, I think. Uh, they've been, they've been, it's assumed that people aren't very intelligent and they've been humoured. I'll ju just tell them what they need to know or what they want to hear. Well, no, I, I think people can take an interest and make their own decisions. And that will lead to more accurate individual understanding. And I believe that will lead to more accurate collective decision making. Because surely decisions are going to be made better if they're made on a better understanding of the facts. And open discourse is, is totally fundamental to that. And that's really what we're not getting. And if people have been honest, for example, chief medical officers, chief scientific officers, politicians have been more honest. The I'm not saying I'm not saying the medical officers have been lying to us, but if they've been saying, well, look, we don't know about this, but I think we should try this, then people would join in that. If you take Tim Spector's work on on the the COVID symptom tracker app, then um, about four million people have contributed to that, and still nearly a million people are contributing regularly because they understand it. And, and that's just an individual initiative. If that, if that had been a university initiative, if, if that had been a government-based initiative, I think whole swathes of the population would have joined on to this and would be much more nearer to truth and objective reality than we are now. Thank you, Dr. John. I've got loads more questions. But, um, I've um, been told that I'm, I have to wrap it up. Or maybe I'll do this last one. See the lab leak theory. Now, one of the ways that, you know, like quite early on in the process, some of the emails seem to reveal... There was analysis that um, suggested that the viruses do not evolve in nature in the manner that this one appeared to have done, making it more likely it was a result of gain of function research. 
um, obviously for me, that's just something I read and I sort of, oh, that fits in with my set of biases. Good. I knew it, the bastards. Right. So like, um, so with you, you're able to look at that data from a different perspective. Um, firstly, what do you think about the lab leak theory? And secondly, if that is true, what are the connotations more broadly uh, around our attitudes to the pandemic? I mean, to understand this fully is very detailed virology and biochemistry, which I don't pretend to understand at all. But the intelligence services have told us, and I think this is true because otherwise various virologists around the world would have come up with this, that this, is not, uh, that this virus is not constructed in a laboratory. So it's not been designed as a virus, as a pathogen, as a weapon. So I think, I think we can accept that. But the problem with this virus is that we don't know where it came from. So, for example, Middle East respiratory syndrome, we know that went from bats to camels to humans. That, 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 is, that is known. And the, the, pre, the previous um, SARS pandemic in 2000, 2003, that almost certainly came from uh, Chivik cats. So, so the animal intermediate there is known. But with SARS coronavirus 2, there is no known animal intermediate. And I think we can rest secure that the Chinese have been trying to find one, but yet they haven't. So there's no known animal intermediate. Now, that leaves the possibility open that this virus was developed in a human cell culture. Now, you'll probably know, Russell, that viruses can only reproduce inside a living cell. So they can reproduce inside a living animal. And in the early days of virology, what they used to use was, uh, was chick embryos in, in eggs. They used to inject eggs and the living cells inside the eggs would produce the viruses. Now we typically have human cultures. So you'll take some tissues from, from, a, from a human tissue. You often combine it with actually a cancer cell that makes it immortal. So you can buy off the shelf now commercially human cells. So you can take a culture of human cells and brew viruses up in them to see where, where the viruses come from. Now, the, the, the fact that there is no animal intermediary has been found does leave open the possibility that this virus was cultivated in human cells. That is quite scientifically possible. In my, in my, in my view, that is possible. Um, I don't think we're ever going to get any conclusive evidence for it because we're not going to get the transparency from all of the governments in the world that would facilitate that. But until we come up with some animal intermediate, um, I think that remains a definite scientific possibility. Yes, and I suppose there's the circumstantial evidence of the laboratory in Wuhan. It just happened that the first cases arose within a few miles of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which just so happens to be a, a research institute in China that specialises in coronaviruses. Bit of a bit of a coincidence. Yes, if that isn't how it happened, you'd think, oh my god, like this is that, 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 is, that is one heck case. of a, one heck of a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Dr. John, thank you. Thank, John, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I hope that we get the opportunity to talk again. I love watching your videos. I love the good faith with which you approach these subjects and with the, the respect that you treat your audience with. And now I know also people that are interviewing you. So thank you for that. And I hope. That yeah, and I, 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 uh, the, the risk of sounding like a mutual admiration society, I've been watching yours and enjoying your content for some time now as well. So thank you. Uh. Oh, thank you. Well, perhaps we'll remain in touch and cultivate some kind of friendship and maybe even a roadshow. 
Uh, yeah, well, I'm up for that. Yeah, give it a <laughs> yeah, go. Travel, <laughs> yeah. travel the world, getting adventures. <laughs> yeah, oh. so, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you, John, so much. I'll, I'll stay in touch That's with you. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to that episode of Under the Skin with John Campbell. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did. Jen, did you enjoy editing it? Yes, he's very nice to listen to. You it. haven't edited it I yet, have, have actually. You? I oh. have. I've been done, done so much work. Out? I've done so many podcasts. So have you? <laughs> I'm so tired of all the podcasts. <laughs> you got the wrong attitude, Jen. I, do, you sit, do you sit by your big apple when you're edit, editing? No, I sit and I can see it. Or I'm in a different room. Sometimes I'm in a different room. Is that Lady Angela who made my T-shirt? No, she's right? in Canada. Oh, shit. I think she right. might be going to South uh, Africa to mm. do another Disney film. The world's gone mad. Yeah. All right. I love you. See you another time. Thanks for watching. Come see me on tour. Under the skin. Luminary, baby.